Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Greetings, everybody, from Montenegro. Now, I've never ever been to Montenegro before. If you haven't been here, it really is a beautiful spot. I am staying in a town called, a town called Budva and uh, at a wonderful hotel. If you're looking for a place to stay here, uh, Vista de Arte is where I am. I'm right next to the old town. And when I say old, this place is really old. Uh, I think people have been living here for a couple thousand years. And uh, this particular town, I'm not sure when it was built. I think it was the, the 1200s or 1300s, something like that. But it really is a spectacular place. You know, I was walking around uh, the old town just through these very narrow streets, right? There's no cars in there or anything. Uh, Just, you know, pedestrians walking around, a lot of shops, a lot of restaurants. And I ran into two fans of the podcast in in Old Town Budva. Uh, One guy was Serbian, so he wasn't that far from home. But another guy was from uh, Sweden. He lives in Stockholm. He was here with his family. And this guy, I'm running into this guy. He's walking back to his uh, apartment. They had, he and his family had rented an apartment. We're staying right next to our hotel. is right next to the old town. This guy was in the old town. And he's coming back from the beach. And he's like, Peter Schiff, you know. And I'm, you know, we're just walking right you know, towards each other. But the guy is actually holding a copy of uh, Atlas Shrugged in his hands, a paperback. That's what he's been reading while he's been here on the beaches. And I looked at his bookmark. He's almost done with the entire book. But, you know, it's amazing to run into, you know, people that watch the podcast. Like, you know, they're, they're all over the world. But just two of them in the span of about 10 or 15 minutes walking around in this uh, medieval town. Anyway, um, Getting into the podcast, it was a pretty, uh, I think, decisive week, telling week in the markets. You know, I wasn't even paying too much attention to the markets because I've, I've been out here on vacation. Uh, but even still, I was able to 
pick up on the fact that I think what's going on is significant in that the stock market and the bond market were both weak. In particular, the bond market, but the dollar was also weak. So you had weakness in stocks, weakness in bonds, weakness in the dollar. The one place we saw strength was in gold. Now, not a lot of strength. Gold was up maybe six bucks on the week, but still, given the fact that everything else went down, I think the fact that gold managed to go up, I think we could indicate that we've kind of come to the end of this trend where we've had this bear market rally in stocks and the pullback in gold. You know, one of the catalysts, I think, for the weakness in the markets, particularly the bond market, and I'll, you know, let me actually talk about the bond market because bonds got clobbered. And in fact, all of the yields now across the spectrum are north of 4%. And of course, if you look at the shortest term paper, the three-month T-bill, the yield closed the week at 5.34%. Six months is 5.43, and the one year is 5.38. So anything under a year, you're getting well north of 5% on your money. The two-year, though, is at 4.95, so almost 5%. The five-year at 4.36. The 10-year at 4.06. And the 30-year at 4.05. Now, not only did every maturity uh, rise in, in yield and drop in price, but we have a complete inversion all the way from the six-month to the 30-year. The yield on the 10-year is even above the yield on the 30 years. So the yield curve is clearly flashing recession. Now, you know, you could argue, and I have, that we're in a recession, even though the statistics don't reflect that. But what the yield curve is telling you is that we're going to be in a recession. The question is, when is it going to start if it isn't already here? But also the yield curve, to me, still shows that inflation expectations are still anchored, but they may be on the verge of becoming unanchored. And if that is the case, I expect to see a sharper increase in yields in the 30 year. And I, I expect that inversion to reverse because as investors start to have a more realistic outlook on inflation, they're going to sell bonds, particularly the 30 year bonds. And the fact that the dollar went down this week and gold went up may be uh, a reflection of the fact that investors are starting to, um, to think this way. But one of the things that happened during the week that I think is responsible for the carnage that we had in the bond market, which really is what caused the stock market to fall. It was the weakness in the bond market that I think dragged down the stock market. But part of that was the release of the most recent FOMC minutes. And the Fed seemed pretty sure, based on these minutes, that more rate hikes are coming. That yes, they didn't hike rates at their last meeting, but pretty much all of the governors expect that more rate hikes are coming. So they're just slowing down the pace of rate hikes. 
but they're not stopping the rate hikes. And of course, a lot of people uh, are betting that the Fed is finished, that the reason they paused is because they're done. And I think there's a good chance that that is the case. But, you know, the Fed is certainly talking like that's not the case. They're acknowledging that inflation is still a threat. And it's actually a bigger threat than what they acknowledge. But they're not proclaiming victory. And they're talking about more hikes. So I think that hurt the market. But what really clobbered the bond market this week and dragged down the stock market was the much stronger than expected numbers that we got from um, ADP, which is the private sector payroll numbers that comes out the same week that we get the government, the official, <coughs> excuse me, official jobs report. I still got my cough, although it's not nearly as bad as it was. So hopefully by the next podcast, I won't be coughing at all. But the, the ADP number comes out earlier in the week. And that number shocked the markets in how strong it was. The expectation was for 235,000 jobs. This is for June. The range of what was expected was a low of 95,000 jobs and a high of 253,000 jobs. The number came out at at plus 497,000 jobs, almost half a million jobs. Basically double what had been a forecast, more than double. And that clobbered the bond market. Stock market was down, I think, at the lows, down around 500. It closed off the lows. But this number surprised everybody and got everybody to think, okay, that's it. The Fed's going to have to get more aggressive here because of all these jobs. Because again, the Fed is still under the false impression that inflation is a byproduct of people working. And if more people are working, then we're going to have more inflation. (coughs) And that is not the case. In fact, it's the opposite. When people are productively employed, they make more things, you have more stuff, it costs less. When you have a lot of people who aren't working and who aren't producing, but they're spending because they're getting unemployment checks or food stamps or other forms of welfare, all of that is inflationary because you have less stuff being produced, but more money being printed to buy that stuff. And so you know, the markets and the Fed still haven't you know, come to terms with that reality yet. They're still living in the, in the false uh, world of, of the Phillips curve. But the markets still respond to that because I think that's how the markets are programmed. But anyway, what's interesting is not what happened to the markets when we got the ADP number, but what happened to the markets when we got the official government number that came out on Friday, right? The ADP number was on Wednesday and the actual jobs report was a miss. This is the first time in like a year that we got a number that was smaller than was expected. Now, it wasn't a lot smaller, but it wasn't a beat like the ADP number. They were looking for 213,000 jobs for June, and we got 209,000. So we got fewer jobs than were expected. But what was even more significant than that 
were the Dowd revisions because the government came out and revised down every single month of the year. So they went back January, February, March, April, May, all five months got downward revisions. So the January number that was originally reported at 517,000, which was a strong number, was revised to up 472,000. The February number went from up 311,000 to up 248,000. The March number went from plus 236 to plus 217. Um, The April number went from plus 253 to plus 217. And the May number went from plus uh, 339 to plus 306. So all told, 196,000 jobs disappeared, right? 196,000 jobs that the government claimed were created, they now acknowledge that those jobs were not created. Now, I've been saying all along that I don't believe these job numbers. I think they're overstated. And I think that despite this downward revision, they're probably still overstated because I think the total revision eliminated about 12% of all the jobs that the government claimed were created in the first five months of the year. Now, I have a feeling that maybe we're going to get some more downward revisions to these prior numbers as the government gets more information to reveal that these numbers are likely false. And again, a lot of the numbers have come from the birth-death model where the government is assuming that businesses are being born, right? People are starting new businesses and that those new businesses are adding employees. But I think these assumptions are wrong. In fact, I was reading an article on Zero Hedge, and the article mentioned that bankruptcies, corporate bankruptcies, so not total bankruptcies, but corporations that are filing from bankruptcy so far this year, this is the most since 2010. Now, 2010 was kind of the tail end of the Great Recession, uh, 2008 financial crisis. So you got to go back to that environment to find a period where you had more corporate bankruptcies than what we have right now. And we're not even technically in recession yet. I mean, if we're having so many bankruptcies before the recession, just imagine how many bankruptcies we're going to have during and at the end of the recession, because recessions typically put a lot of companies into bankruptcy. We're having all these companies going bankrupt before the recession even starts. But the point I wanted to make as far as bringing this up is if the government is still assuming all these new companies are being formed and creating all these jobs, well, all these bankruptcies would indicate that it's more companies that are dying, right? The birth death model needs to be adjusted to have more deaths. Because that's what's happening. Companies are dying. And these dying companies are obviously laying off workers. If we have all these bankruptcies, does it make sense that we have strong jobs gains? Because companies going bankrupt don't hire a lot of people. Normally, when a company is going bankrupt, they're laying off people. So clearly the government is missing a lot of layoffs and overstating job creation that isn't taking place. Anyway, I got a quick commercial break. We'll be right back, so don't go anywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, 
pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Getting back to the non-farm payroll report, I want to take a look at the rest of the numbers. So again, 209,000 jobs created. That was a miss over the consensus. But what was more important was the downward revision, not only to the previous month, but to every month of 2023. The official unemployment rate held steady at 3.6%. That was what was expected. But another weak number, and especially shocking given the ADP number that came out earlier in the week, which was so strong, almost 500,000 private sector jobs. The official number for private sector jobs by the government was just 149,000 jobs. That was well below the 199,000 jobs that had been expected. In fact, the consensus range for the private sector was between 180,000 and 253,000. And we came in well below the low end of that range at 149,000. So a very weak number. Manufacturing jobs, 7,000, a small number, actually a bit more than was expected. It was 5,000, although they did revise down the previous month from 2,000 to 3,000. Now again, obviously too, these numbers are guesses because they're not, you know, they're not exact, right? It's not 5,000. 2,000, 3,000. I mean, the numbers are coming out exact because they're a guess, right? If they knew how many jobs, you know, they wouldn't end in all these zeros. So it's an estimate. I just think the estimates are probably way off. Labor force participation, that stayed the same at 62.6. This is still a low number. I mean, we we haven't really recovered much uh, from the COVID lows as far as uh, labor force participation. Average hourly earnings were up 0.4. That was a bit hotter than what was expected. It was expected to be up 0.3. And they revised the prior month from up 0.3 to up 0.4. So that's a little hotter on the inflation front. And that's why the year-over-year increase in average hourly earnings came in at 4.4. That was above the 4.2% expected and equal to the 4.4 from the prior month, which was an upward revision from 4.3. So not only was the jobs number weaker than expected, but these earnings numbers were higher. And that uh, is a negative for the market. And the market reaction, again, I think was very telling. Because when the ADP number came out, right, the bond market got killed because the number was stronger than expected. But then when we got the government number coming out weaker than expected, Bonds went down again. I mean, they didn't go down as much, but they went down. They didn't recover. You would have expected the bond market to rally. It would have been a relief rally because maybe the bond market thought that given how hot the ADP number was, that the government number would be hot too. Instead, it came out cold, but bonds didn't recover. 
And, and to me, that was very negative for the markets because I've been looking for and waiting for a breakdown in the bond market. I've been thinking that we're just going sideways, but that we have another big move down in bonds, meaning a big move up in yields. And that could be happening where we start to see the movement on the 10 to the 30 from a four handle to a five handle. Remember, we've already got the shorter maturities in the fives. The longer term bonds should be up there too. And if that happens, if we start moving towards 5% on the 10 year through the 30 year, that is going to be a huge problem because that's going to put a lot more downward pressure on the portfolios of banks. Right? All their underwater mortgage-backed securities and treasury portfolios are about to get hammered, which means a lot more bonds are going to be swapped with the Fed because the Fed is there to backstop the banks. This is going to put a lot of pressure on the banks. It's going to put a lot of pressure on commercial real estate, and it's going to put pressure on the stock market. But also what I thought was significant about the sell-off in the bond market that we had on the week is that we didn't get a rise in the dollar. In fact, we got a fall <coughs> in, in the dollar. The dollar index closed last week at 102 spot 9. And it closed this week at 102 spot 27. It got clobbered on Friday after we got that week jobs report. In fact, all of the losses for the dollar happened on Friday with that week report. But the bond market didn't recover any of its losses. In fact, it closed pretty much on the low of the week. And the same thing with the stock market. The Dow ended up dropping almost 200 points on Friday. Uh, so it didn't recover uh, anything. In fact, on the week, I wrote down the numbers, the Dow was down almost 2%. It was the worst weekly performance since March of this year. NASDAQ down almost a percent, 0.9. S&P down 1.16%. So we may have seen the peak in the stock market, especially if we're about to have another leg down in the bond market and a move up in gold, but also problematic for the markets. Look at oil prices. Oil closed at almost $74 a barrel up $2.06 on Friday. Closed very strong on the week. You know, OPEC had a meeting during the week. I didn't really get any of the news. You know, the OPEC meeting happened about two blocks away from my hotel when I was in Vienna. In fact, all the OPEC guys stayed in the same hotel as me because when I came down that morning to leave, because we, we, we left from, uh, from Vienna to Budapest. But as I left the hotel, the place, the lobby was swarmed with OPEC guys. And they had all these cars and police out front and security guards, you know, to, to protect these guys. Uh, but, you know, I'm not really sure, again, what happened at the meeting, but oil prices were very firm following that meeting. And so oil is really breaking out. If you kind of look at it on a chart, we're breaking out of this consolidation. Normally, you do see an inverse relationship between oil and bonds because rising oil prices could reflect inflation and higher inflation is bad for bonds because it erodes away their value. 
So you've got this move up in oil. Gold, again, I said was up about six bucks on the week. But all of that rise happened on Friday. We had about a $14 move up in the price of gold. So gold moved up on the week jobs numbers. The dollar moved down on the week jobs numbers. That's what you expect. But bonds sold off. And so stocks sold off and you got this oil rally. So to me, this is negative for the U.S. markets and indicates positive momentum, I think, for gold, for gold stocks. I mean, gold stocks were down on the week. They were all up. They had nice gains on Friday. I mean, gold stocks are among the only gainers in oil stocks. (coughs) But uh, the GDX and GDXJ were still down on the week, down about 2%. But given how weak the overall markets were, the fact that they weren't down more, I think is a good sign. But I think the fact that the price of gold went up was an even better sign. Anyway, we got one more commercial break, so we'll take that now. And uh, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the markets. And then I'll talk about some of the other economic data that came out during the week. Almost all of it bad. All right. Before the break, I was talking about the positive signs, I think, in the precious metals market. The fact that financials are going down. You've got bonds falling. That's going to be bad for the banks. It's going to be bad for the overall stock market. We've had this hyped up short covering rally that has surprised a lot of people based on the magnitude of this rally, particularly when it comes to the NASDAQ and the tech stocks. But all the time, the markets have been ignoring uh, the reality of horrible underlying economic fundamentals that should be weighing on the market. Now, of course, the markets got beat up pretty badly in 2022. And so we rallied from probably an oversold condition at the end of that year. But the fundamentals, as far as I'm concerned, got worse, not better. But there was a lot of false hope that uh, the inflation genie was you know, going to be put back in the bottle based on the fact that you know, 9% year-over-year CPI gains uh, went down to a four-handle. But as I've been saying, that's the trough. We're going back up. The inflation curve is going to bend higher and we're going to start to print numbers with five and six handles and higher at a time when the economy is going to be weakening. In fact, entering officially a recession, maybe matching what we've unofficially been operating in. Again, if we've got the most bankruptcies since the end of the Great Recession, generally you don't get that happening if times are good. Companies are going bankrupt when times are not good, and they're not, especially when you had interest rates at zero or close to it for more than a decade, and now they're 5% and rising. That's going to create a lot of problems for a lot of companies. But let me get get into some of the other economic data points. There were a lot that came out on the week, and again, all this stuff is, uh, is a negative. So the Challenger job cuts numbers, that came out on Thursday. And that was a number, big number, not as big as the prior number, which was 80,000 job cuts. But it was still 40,709 uh, were the announced uh, job cuts for the month. 
look at um, construction spending. That, that was one of the few numbers that was better than estimates. But there was a big revision to the prior month, which was originally reported as up 1.2. That was revised to just up 0.4. And, and so the consensus for May was up 0.5. We were up 0.9. But if you, you know, think about the fact that we rose 0.9 from what was downwardly revised from up 1.2 to up 0.4, the total level is lower than what was expected. And in fact, the year-over-year numbers really moved south. The increase in spending year-over-year went from 7.2 to 2.4. Now, this number is not adjusted for inflation. Anybody who's involved in construction knows that costs are up more than 2.4% year-over-year. So that means in real terms, construction spending is falling, which means construction is falling. It's just that what is being constructed is more expensive, and that's why the numbers are going up. Factory orders for May, also a big disappointment. They were looking for a gain of 0.9. Instead, we got a gain of 0.3. Again, this is not because more stuff is being ordered. It's because less stuff is being ordered. It's just more expensive. That's why the numbers are going up. And the prior month was revised from up 0.4 to up 0.3. ISM for June, another bad number. They were looking for a bad number. They got an even worse number. The expectation was for an improvement of the weak number we had in May. The May number was 46.9. Remember, anything below 50 is recession, right? We're talking about the strong economy, and these ISM manufacturing numbers are in the recession zone month after month. They were looking for an improvement to 47.3. Instead, it went in the other direction to 46 even. That was lower than the low end of estimates. The range went from 46.6 up to 48.5, and we came in at 46 even. So again, these are negative numbers even before we're officially in a recession. The ISM service index, though, that's the only one number, you know, really, that was a, a, a strong number on the week, right? That, so, I mean, that one came out at 53.9. So that one's back out of recession territory. It was at 50.3 the previous month. The estimate was 50.8. And so that one, you know, is above 50. But, you know, I, I think the uh, the manufacturing is the more important, even though uh, the you have more jobs in the service sector. The higher paying jobs, those are in manufacturing. And we've got to manufacture. That's key. We've got to make stuff. And so if we have fewer people making stuff, even if we have more people employed in the services, they still need to buy stuff. And that means bigger trade deficits, you know, in a weaker dollar. Uh, the jobless, the weekly jobless claims numbers, I mean, they're staying elevated, 248,000. Uh, few thousand more than the prior week. But remember, those those claims were hanging out around 200,000 before they spiked up to around 260. So we are starting to see more cracks in the labor market, not just the weakness that we saw in the uh, in the jobs numbers. I got a few more of these here. Um, yeah, the jolts number uh, back below 10,000. Remember last month, uh, it was 10 million, excuse me, 10 million. Last month in April, it was 10.3 million 
job openings. And that dropped now to 9.824 million. So a, a bit of a decline in the, uh, the jobs. But again, um, yeah, this is, I look at the PMI. This is the uh, June number. All right, this is back above 50, 53.2. I'm not actually sure what they were looking for there on that one. I'm just looking at the total number. I got a couple more. The PMI manufacturing. This was another weak number, 46.3 uh, 46 on that one. That was, I think, in line with consensus. But again, well below 50, a, a number that you would expect to see during a recession. We also got the trade numbers. Again, the uh, total trade in goods and services. So that's the smaller deficit because it includes the, um, the, um, the surplus that we have in, in services. And so that deficit came out at $68 billion, a little bit better than the $69 billion that was estimated, uh, and a little bit better than the $74 billion from the prior month. But again, this is a huge number, this trade deficit. You know, almost $70 billion a month. We're looking at $1 trillion a year. It still amazes me that every month, nobody reports on the trade deficit. It's like a yawn. Nobody even cares how bad this number is. I wonder if there's even a number that could be so bad that it would be reported on. But nobody even bothers to notice in fact, if anything, the way the media would react to a really, really bad trade deficit, like a number that blew everything away, the media would probably say, wow, the U.S. economy is so strong that we had this huge trade deficit. Because that's how they talk about it. If they even bother to discuss the trade deficit, the major, uh, you know, economists, the, the the newspapers or the you know the internet articles, when they write about it, they always talk about the trade deficit as evidencing the strong U.S. economy. Like our economy is stronger than our trading partners, and because our economy is so strong, we're just buying so much stuff, right? Our strong economy is generating all this spending, and because our economy is stronger than, let's say, the Japanese economy or the European economy or the Chinese economy, we're running a trade deficit. Our economy is so strong, we're spending so much more than everybody else. Of course, that is pure nonsense. We don't have a trade deficit because we have a strong economy. We have a trade deficit because we have a weak economy. You know, once upon a time, America had the strongest economy in the world. And we had the biggest trade surpluses in the world at the same time. You see, when your economy is strong, you produce a lot of stuff. You produce more stuff than you need. And you export the surplus. So strong economies are productive economies. They produce excess stuff more than they need. See, we're trying to redefine strength as spending. Spending money is not a sign of strength. In fact, it could be a sign of weakness if you're borrowing that money, which is exactly what we're doing. You know, other countries are saving while we're going into debt. 
Those are the strong economies, not America. It's the countries that are operating with trade surpluses that produce more than they consume. Those are the strong economies. It's a weak economy that consumes more than it produces. It's an economy that is uh, made up of people who are living beyond their means. Is that what you do when you're strong? Do you live beyond your means? No. <laughs> when you're strong, you have so much means that you can live beneath them, that you can accumulate savings. That's how you accumulate wealth. So even when they report on the trade deficit, they misreport. They don't understand it. And again, I think it's because so many people are of the mindset that America has a strong economy, that they take this weak economic data and they somehow try to sugarcoat it or their mind just can't comprehend that it, it, it's evidence of weakness. So they, people take this weak economic data and they spin it as if it was strong. And a lot of people just, oh yeah, sure. We have a strong economy, so we go out and spend. Right? These other countries, they don't have all that economic strength, so they can't spend so much. And maybe superficially, if you don't really have much of an understanding of economics, you know, you could buy this. And unfortunately, most of the people who are economists in this country who teach economics or who are professionals that work for the government or the Federal Reserve, they don't understand anything about economics either. So they might think that these trade deficits uh, are a reflection of how strong our economy is, but the reality is it's the reverse. But what's more significant right now about the trade deficits is that it has to be financed. And we have $2 trillion budget deficits. Nobody talks about the twin deficits anymore. They were a huge problem <coughs> in the 1980s. Everybody talked about the twin deficits back then because we were running trade surplus, trade deficits, and uh, budget deficits. And they were a problem. They were a big problem for the bond market. They were a big problem for the dollar. And they became a big problem for the stock market. In fact, the trade deficits and the impact it had on the dollar and the bond market is probably the real reason that we had the stock market crash in 1987. But today, nobody cares about either of these deficits, even though they're both much bigger now than they were back then. Well, nobody cares until they care. And I think soon uh, people are going to start paying attention to these numbers. And I, again, what I think we saw in the markets this week and especially on Friday, given the failure of the bond market to rally on a weak jobs number, right? given the fact that the dollar and the bond market decoupled, where the dollar sold off and bonds sold off or, or coupled, because they had been trading opposite, right? Because they were all trading rate. The currency traders were looking at strong economic data, which was bad for bonds, they were buying the dollar. So even though they were selling treasuries, they were buying dollars. Now they're selling treasuries and dollars at the same time. That is a very bad sign for the U.S. economy and for the financial markets. And again, gold went up and oil went up. And oil went up 
you know, a couple of bucks, but on a chart, we've now taken out some resistance. There was, you know, oil was trading below 70 for a while, and now it's kind of broken out. And so it looks like there's a lot of room to go up. And if oil prices are going to rise, a lot of other commodity prices are going to rise too. And the main reason that we got the break in the headline CPI was energy prices and other commodity prices that came down. If they're now going up, if oil has bottomed and we're going up from here, that's going to start to put the upward pressure on these official inflation numbers. And remember, the whole time headline inflation was coming down, the core wasn't. I mean, the core numbers still stayed in the high fours, low fives. Never got anywhere near 2%. Because again, remember, the Fed is more focused on the core, not the headline numbers. And so we got more relief in the headline numbers than the core. But now the headline numbers are going to turn higher. And the core never really went down. And now that's going to turn higher. So this is a huge problem because if the markets recognize that inflation is here today, here to stay, that is a whole new ball game for gold and the dollar. And I think this is a great time, you know, to be buying here. Gold is not breaking 1900. I mean, it closed the week around 1925. I really haven't seen it trade below 1900. So it's in a very narrow range. Yes, it didn't hold 2000. And so a lot of people got bearish on gold because it didn't hold 2000. So what? You know, it's holding 1900. Gold is holding up despite the fact that everybody is optimistic on the economy, optimistic on tech, optimistic that the Fed has gotten the inflation genie back in the bottle. There's all sorts of optimism out there and very little interest in the price of gold or buying gold. And despite all that, gold hasn't gone down. And I think it's holding up a lot better than people give it credit for. And we're getting ready for a big move up. So I think, you know, this is a good time to be buying at this price. I don't think you're going to get much lower prices. If you're trying to wait for a low price, I think you're pretty much in the neighborhood of, of the bottom. And so this is where you should be buying your gold, more, you know, even your silver, even more so. I see more upside in silver than gold, but I see upside in both of those metals. So again, you want to contact shift gold uh, and, and, and buy some physical gold and silver. For those of you who are risk takers, right? if you want to try to, you know, make five or 10 times your money or maybe more, the way to do that is not in physical gold but in the mining stocks. If the price of gold does what I think it's going to do, then we're going to have an explosive rally in these mining stocks. And nobody is buying these stocks. I mean, the sentiment is very negative in the sector. People are still chasing uh, the tech names or now the you know AI names. Uh, but nobody is paying attention to the real inflation trade. Nobody is buying the senior miners, let alone, you know, these junior miners. That's what you should be doing, right? You need to be looking uh, at where the big money uh, is ignoring, right? That's how you end up making a lot of money uh, as a speculator. You got to figure out what the crowd is missing. And then you got to get to where the crowd is going to ultimately be 
before they arrive. I know eventually the markets are going to figure out what I know. They're going to come to terms with the reality of higher inflation. It's going to be reflected in the bond market. It's going to be reflected in the gold market, the dollar, and it's ultimately going to show up in the price of mining stocks. So the, the crowd is going to figure this out eventually. And when they do, it's going to be a stampede, right? And they're all going to be, you know, running into one another, uh, bidding up these prices. There aren't a lot of mining stocks out there. Even if you added up all the uh, market caps of the whole sector, uh, you don't even get one decent uh, S&P 500 company. I forget the combined market cap of all the gold stocks, but it's very small. Uh, and, you know, even if the institutions that are out there uh, the pension funds, the endowments, the hedge funds, if they just want 5% allocation to this sector, it's a game changer. You know, probably even 2%, 1% would, would be huge because right now it's practically zero. So there's really no interest, even though there should be tremendous interest because, again, <coughs> we still have faith in the Fed. People still believe Jerome Powell. They believe, you know, everybody else on the FOMC. When they say they're going to bring inflation down to 2%, they believe them. <laughs> they still don't get that they're going to say that regardless of what they're actually capable of doing. But the other way you know that Powell is not serious about bringing inflation down to 2% is that he's saying nothing about the budget deficits. He's not telling Congress to cut government spending because there's no way that inflation is coming down to 2% unless that happens. And Powell has got to know that. His job is impossible with $2 trillion budget deficits and $1 trillion trade deficits. There's no way. Inflation rates are headed much higher unless we have massive cuts in government spending. And that's not going to happen. And it's especially not going to happen if you have a weak Fed chairman like Jerome Powell, who is afraid to speak up <coughs> and tell Congress what they need to do and what they need to hear. And that they've got to reduce spending significantly. They're still spending, you know, like it's, it's COVID. You know, we had this huge increase in government spending during COVID. And while it's come down quite a bit from the extreme levels that we got to, they didn't return to the levels pre-COVID. And they were extreme too. We were spending too much before COVID. Now, we're even spending that much more after COVID. In fact, let me look. The national debt has been uh, really starting to move. Let me look at the uh, national debt clock. I just want to take a look at that. <coughs> and see how much higher it's gone. Hold on. National debt clock. You can see this clock on the internet. Nobody really pays much attention to it anymore. I forget when they first put it up there. Yeah, look at this. <coughs> We're now almost at 32 and a half trillion. It, we, just, we just passed 32 trillion like a month ago. Because we're at thirty-two trillion four hundred and seventy-six thousand 
we're going to be at 33 trillion before the end of the summer. I mean, this could be the quickest trillion we've ever added to the national debt. It might only take like three months uh, for the national debt to get up there. So it is just spiraling out of control. How is there any hope that you're going to get inflation under control? In fact, if you look at the historic relationships between the U.S. dollar and the budget deficits, when the budget deficits are rising, the dollar is falling. And that's exactly what's happening now. Budget deficits are exploding. The only thing that's been keeping the dollar up has been the, the, the rate hikes and the idea that the Fed is going to keep on fighting inflation and you know do whatever it takes and it's going to keep on hiking rates. Well, it's not going to do that because it can't possibly hike rates enough to break the back of inflation. All it can do is break the economy, which in fact, it's already done. It just hasn't shown up officially yet. They broke the financial market. That already happened with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, the other banks that blew up. The Fed broke them. I mean, of course, that was an accident waiting to happen. It wasn't the rate hikes that did it. It was the rate cuts. The rate hikes just exposed the problem that the Fed created with the rate cuts and keeping rates as low as they did for as long as they did. But imagine what's going to happen uh, in the next leg. Because now that the bond market is breaking down and that yields are moving up, we're going to have a lot more pressure. We had this lull before the storm because the government rushed in uh, with this rescue and bailed out these banks and bailed out the depositors and created this false sense of complacency that the worst was over and that you know we didn't have anything to worry about because the politicians and the bankers solved the problem. They didn't solve the problem. They just papered it over as the problem got bigger. And, and, and so I think that what's going to be happening is that the dollar is going to break, right? And when it breaks, it's going to break hard. And that makes sense with these exploding budget deficits and trade deficits. And if we get a weak dollar, then again, that's going to put wind in the sail of a commodity bull market. We've already turned the corner on oil. If the dollar weakens, then that's going to further strengthen oil. That's going to put more downward pressure on bonds. And in fact, if we really get a run on the dollar, we're going to get a run on bonds. We're going to get a run on treasuries. Because a lot of international investors who want to get rid of the dollar, they got to get rid of treasuries. Because that's where their dollars are. They're invested in treasuries. They didn't stuff them under a mattress. They bought bonds. A lot of them bought treasuries. So all that's going to come under pressure. We'll see what happens next week. I mean, I'm very interested to see if we get some significant follow-through on last week. I mean, nobody seems to be worried. I mean, I read, you know, quite a few articles, uh, you know, over the over this weekend, uh, and I didn't really notice uh, any concern. You know, nobody is really pointing to what happened this week with any sense of concern that maybe this is the beginning of something or the end of something or both. 
Uh, and so I think it's going to be very significant to watch the markets to see if we get a further breakdown in bonds, if we get a big move up in gold, a big move down in the dollar, and the stock market goes down, uh, that will be a good sign that what I just pointed out is, 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 is accurate. That we've reached a critical inflection point in the markets and things are about to change. And, and again, that means that people have to get better prepared. That time is running out to uh, you know, get your portfolio to reflect this. I already mentioned you know, shift gold and getting your gold. If you want to be more aggressive, look at the mining stocks. Again, I've been buying more of these stocks myself. I put more of my own money into gold mining stocks again uh, last week on that sell-off. I mean, every time these stocks are selling off, I'm buying. I mean, I, I, I think I'm being given gifts by the market to increase my position. And that's what I'm doing. And that's what I encourage anybody who, uh, you know, is willing to accept the risk. Because again, you know, gold stocks, you know, they, these aren't widow and orphan type investments. I mean, there's a lot of risk in mining anyway. I mean, all mining operations carry a tremendous risk. I mean, if you're looking for a business that doesn't have a lot of risks, then don't get into mining. Uh, but, you know, I'm looking for uh, speculations where the upside potential is way out of proportion to the downside risk. And that's what I think I've got. In fact, I think from a perspective of my entire investing lifetime, I don't think I've ever seen a better risk reward in the mining stocks than what I see right now. Sure, you could lose a lot. I mean, hell, the stocks, some stocks can go bankrupt, right? You could lose everything. But even if you lose everything, right? But if I think that you can make 10x, 20x, 50x, I mean, that is way out of proportion. The amount that you could make, I think, in the mining sector, if I'm right, is so out of proportion to the money you can lose. So as long as you can afford to lose some amount of money, then put that money into the sector. Because what you can make, if I'm right, is so out of proportion to what you can lose. Now, don't invest if you can't afford to lose because there's that risk, but it's the risk reward. That's what makes it such a good speculation. There's so much more to make, if I'm right, money-wise, then you could lose if I'm wrong. You just have to be prepared to lose and not invest more than you can afford to lose um, in search of those, of those gains. So if you're looking for that kind of skewed return, that, that, that way out of proportion upside, then look at these mining stocks. And again, you can do it yourself or you can have my, my, my team manage it. Adrian Day manages the gold portfolios for Euro Pacific Asset Management. So you can have a custom account uh, managed by Adrian Day. It's your own individual account. If you don't have enough for a custom account, if you can't meet the minimums, and you can talk to the, the reps at Euro Pacific Asset Management, you can buy our gold fund, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund. You can buy it directly on my website at europac.com, uh, or you can buy it at any discount broker. You got an account at Schwab, you know, Fidelity, uh, Ameritrade, um, 
uh, all, interactive brokers, all these uh, uh, brokerage firms. You can buy all my funds. They're there. You know, buy them no load. You make sure you get the right symbol. Uh, also, we have wrap programs where we waive the loads. If you want to get into a portfolio where I manage your account within my funds, where we you know kind of tweak the allocation and time the market for you. We do that at Europe Pacific Asset Management and at the uh, Alliance Global Partners. So you got to talk to one of my brokers about the wrap accounts. But I'm talking specifically about the gold accounts and the gold fund. And that's where I think people should be focusing. I mean, I like all my other funds. You know, there's a lot of upside potential in those funds. But the gold stocks just remain, I think, just they're giving these stocks away. I don't know how much longer we're going to have this opportunity. That's why I like to, you know, focus on it because, you know, I mean, I think we're going to be able to buy these stocks for years and years and years. They're just not going to be this cheap. And so as long as they are, I'm trying to encourage anybody who is a, a speculator, you know, you know, you're willing to take the risk uh, to, to, to take your positions. And again, I'm adding to my own positions uh, in this sector because I'm just surprised even that at this late stage that I can still do this. I would have thought that I was done buying gold stocks. I had so many, I was just going to kind of rest on my position uh, and, and invest new funds in other sectors. But I keep having to buy more gold stocks. It's not like I'm not buying non-gold stocks. I'm buying those too. I just thought I was done uh, because I've, I have so much money already in the sector. But I can't ignore the opportunity that the market is giving me. And, and so I, I would encourage my clients to do the same thing. Again, remember, before you buy the gold fund, read the prospectus, make sure you understand the risks. The same, the same goes with any of my funds. Got an emerging market fund, a value fund, a dividend payer fund, and a, and a bond fund. <coughs> my bond fund, too, is all foreign. And it's a lot of emerging markets. So if you're looking for a place to park your cash, if you're looking for something that's liquid, but that you don't want to be in the stock market, I think my bond fund is an excellent choice. I'd much rather be in these emerging market short-term bonds than U.S. Treasuries, for sure. I think these currencies, if I'm right about what I think is going to happen to the dollar, uh, these currencies are going to be the biggest gainers. And so I think this emerging market debt is the type of debt that you want to own. I mean, I prefer owning equities, but if you're going to own debt, in emerging markets is where you want to be. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. I think the next time I do one, I'm going to be in Greece. Uh, so maybe I'll run into a few of my uh, uh, podcast fans there. My first stop in Greece is going to be Mykonos. Uh, we're spending about five days there, and then we're off to Santorini and Athens, and then back to Connecticut. So getting towards the end of this European trip, and so uh, hopefully everybody is enjoying the content that I'm providing on the road. And I'll see you all again from Greece.